Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. I haven't been in the seat for a few weeks now, but this is Mo Zassel, the Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, very happy to be back again. Today we have uh, Stefan Gerlach, who's the Chief Economist for EFG. Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much, Moz. One thing we promised ourselves on this podcast is we have been powled out. So we're trying to avoid talking about the Federal Reserve and what's going to happen with US interest rates. Um, I, I'm sure you might want to uh, delve into that, but uh, maybe we, if we have a bit of time at the end, we'll, we'll go to that. But I think there is a lot of interesting things going on elsewhere in the world. So uh, certainly we'll try and uh, focus our attention on uh, on that. So maybe we're going to start uh, where I've been quite a lot over the last few weeks is actually in Switzerland. So uh, let's start uh, in terms of monetary policy with the SMB. So for those who don't know, the Swiss National Bank surprised the market a few weeks ago um, in raising interest rates, a full half a percent, which was a surprise, but actually not a surprise for Stefan. Uh, so uh, Stefan, maybe you can um, you know, give us some insights as to why they acted now rather than waiting till the ECB or, or even the Federal Reserve had done a lot more. To be honest, Moss, I think I was a little bit surprised uh, as, as well. I thought it was a very good idea for them to do so, but I didn't think they would actually take, uh, take the step uh, and, uh, and raise rates. I think there were a number of factors uh, under, underpinning uh, this, this decision. I mean, first of all, inflation in Switzerland is, um, is unusually high. I mean, it's almost around, it's around 3%. And uh, by Swiss standards, that's, um, that's terrible. Inflation is much lower here than in the rest of Europe because Switzerland uses a lot of nuclear power and water power and has not at all been influenced in the same way by rising energy prices, oil prices and gas prices as the rest of Europe. Moreover, there's quite a few administered prices in Switzerland and they don't change very quickly and, and, so, and so on. But, but 3% inflation is a bit of a shocker in Switzerland. Um, in the past, ECB... Sorry... In the past, the SMB has not wanted to raise rates uh, because it was worried about the strength of the franc. But it has argued recently that the franc is is no longer uh, as as strongly overvalued as in the past, and has been less. Uh, it has been less concerned about the exchange rate. Um, so that gave them some 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 liberty to raise uh, to raise rates. And moreover, the SMB only meets four times a year. So the next meeting, um, they had a meeting on the 16th of June and the next meeting would be at the end of September. And in between, the Fed um, would meet um, th- uh, twice, July 26, 27, September 20th, 21st. And the ECB would also meet twice on 21st of July and 8th of September. Given what the markets were pricing in that the Fed would do, and given that Madame Lagarde said that the ECB would raise rates in July and, 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 and probably also do it in, in September, and then perhaps with as much as 50 basis points, and given that the ECB would stop um, bond purchases, it looked like there would be a sea change, a monetary policy sea change over the summer. So the SMB faced the decision of either doing something now or waiting until the end of September and perhaps experience a very strong appreciation of the Swiss franc. 
Um, and I think uh, the SMB always wants to emphasize that it is independent and does not just follow the ECB. Um, so I think they probably felt that it was a good time to actually to move in advance of the ECB on this occasion. Um, so I think there were a number of these factors that, that, came to, that came together. Most commentators feel, rightly or wrongly, that the SMB is simply following the ECB and therefore did not think that... Uh, um, the SMB would raise rates now in June, in June uh, although there are good reasons for do, for doing it. So, so Stefan, obviously SMB wants to kind of reinforce its um, you know independence, um, and obviously a lot of commentators always you know sense that they just follow whatever the ECB is. Obviously, this is a bit of a surprise, but actually probably not a surprise if we know the ECB action is coming. Um, what are your thoughts around? Um, that kind of independence question and um, and uh, and how do you feel about it rather than necessarily what market commentators think about it? I mean, in many ways, I think uh, the small countries in Europe with independent monetary policy, not only Switzerland but Norway and and uh, and and Sweden uh, as well. Obviously, they are very strongly influenced of what happens in in the eurozone, and as the eurozone raises interest rates. Um, that matters for these countries. And moreover, the factors that make the Eurozone or the ECB change interest rates for a boom or bust in the, in the Euro area probably also in, impacts on, on these countries. So it's natural that they follow in some sense what happens in, in the Eurozone. But I think it's very important to have some strategic independence that you can use every now and then uh, if you are sort of exposed to... Uh, particular economic shocks, or as in this situation, simply the timing of the SNB meetings suggested it would make sense for them to move to move in advance. So I think it's unavoidable, in brief, I think it's unavoidable that these countries, uh, their monetary condition, economic conditions are so shaped by the euro area that they will unavoidably uh, move rates in some way, can, together with the eurozone but nevertheless i think it's a very good idea to have a sort of strategic independence and be able to move rates along as you um, as you think best suits your country mm, absolutely so um uh, another independent one is is obviously uh, bank of england um and uh, um sometimes um if you're not particularly good, <laughs> you, 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 you can actually benefit from being associated with the ECB or, or other central bank, or the, maybe not the ECB, but certainly the Federal Reserve. How do you think about the UK uh, and the Bank of England? Uh, I know you and I have had various discussions that we think the communications is uh, not particularly good, but what's your, what's your thinking on the, on the quickly on the Bank of England? So yes, first, a very quick re reaction, uh, sort of historically, I think you're quite right. Uh, for, for many countries in Europe, having had bad monetary policy, they felt it was just much better to be part of the ECB, and the ECB would probably uh, pursue better monetary policy than had been done in these, uh, in these central banks uh, before. With respect to the Bank of England, I think they are in a tricky um, situation. As you and I have discussed before, uh, I, the UK is likely to be quite sensitive uh, or uh, to economic conditions. Brexit means that it's hard to get workers to come in. So if you have an upswing, that will put upward pressure on wages and on prices uh, and so on. Um, so uh, I think, so that's a problem. I also think Governor Bailey, 
who's interestingly whose who's, who's background is with the Bank of England, but not sort of in the monetary policy wing. I think he made some some unfortunate statements last fall that have confused the the markets. And I think in central bankings, you 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 only have one occasion to make a first impression, as they say. And I think that his tenure has been has been in shaped by by these uh, by these mistakes. Mm. And Brexit, of course, is not good for the UK economy. It's more difficult to conduct monetary policy uh, in a situation where you have uh, um, macroeconomic uh, conditions that are slightly adverse. So, um, yeah, Bank of England has uh, has had, and I think will continue to have a very challenging and very environment to operate in. Mm. I think um, you know you and I discussed um, when the whole kind of Brexit deal was completed and and uh, and talked about the challenges that the Bank of England would have had in a Brexit environment and and I think um, we can see it exactly here uh, you know labor fle- labor flexibility is diminished quite significantly um, and certainly uh, for those in the UK having transport strikes uh, and now you know um, uh, strikes at the airport maybe teachers and others coming up in the coming in the coming months um certainly um reinforces that 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 flexibility is is diminished quite substantially so i think unfortunately the uk is in danger of being resigned into boom and bust scenarios as you as you had pre the eu i guess uh, pre the the um, um, the early two thousands. So um, uh, be interesting to see how that um, pans out over the over the coming years. Uh, so let's move to the ECB. Um, they've also got a pretty tough job at the moment. Um, and uh, obviously, last week there was um, uh, in fact two weeks ago now, uh, and then last week they had to do a bit of a U turn on 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 policy making. Um, and the big challenge the ECB has is clearly they've got inflationary pressure. They need to raise rates, but you know um, there is the two or even three-speed Europe that they need to control. Um, and certainly, um, uh, the core may well have higher inflation uh, as well as the periphery. But obviously, if you if you uh, you know one size doesn't fit all, and unfortunately, does see OMT two and and other measures are going to have to be part of any policy response should we um let's let's debate that um what are your thoughts about uh, dual monetary policy tools yeah i think you're you're right here i mean the uh, the central bank has one policy tool let's you know see one major policy tool and that is uh, is the level of interest rates and uh, in europe that's quite problematic because if you raise interest rates um uh, then the yields on risky uh, financial instruments will rise more um, depending on how risky they are. So it almost seems unavoidable just from the sort of the pure economics of it that as rates go up, spreads will open up in in Europe. And of course the ECB should, uh, should not worry about individual countries but just look at the euro area average. But... Uh, that is in 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 theory. I think in practice they are worried that um, if they if they don't do anything, this higher interest rates would become a very serious problem in the 
in the in the periphery of uh, of Europe, Spain and Italy in particular, but perhaps also well, historically we know there's been a problem for Greece and so on and so forth. So it's very hard. I mean, it, it's uh, the fact that public debt is so different across the euro area. It's a real it's a real problem because investors, of course, recognize that uh, the higher interest rates are, the riskier these countries uh, become. And the dilemma, I guess, they have, uh, as you and I have discussed in the past, is um, you know what is a fair spread for Italy or Spain or Portugal, and uh, if indeed the ECB does influence that spread, um, uh, how do they feel about being too tight or too wide? You know what is that fair value spread, and does the ECB determine it, or does market participants determine it? Yeah, well, it's the it's the market that determines it, uh, of course, uh, and what that is, of course, will vary over time depending upon uh, economic conditions. If ec- if economic conditions are good, then the spread will be small, and if the economic uh, conditions turn more adverse, then of course these spreads should. Uh, should become larger. That's that's just the pure economics of it. It has nothing to do with speculation or, or uh, attempts to bring down Europe and, uh, uh, and you know patati patata. Some people say uh, this is just the pure uh, the pure economics of it. Um, and uh, it's very difficult for a central bank uh, to to do much about this. If they say, "Oh, we're going to buy." bonds from these countries if the spreads become too large well the risk is that they end up holding all the bonds of these countries uh, that will look very much like uh, monetary financing as it's called uh, that is the ecb steps in to finance the uh, these governments and that's of course is uh, is uh, not permitted by the by the treaty so so uh, it is a very delicate uh, very delicate thing um i've I find it very difficult to imagine what one could do, what the ECB could do, to combat these uh, these uh, these spreads. Um, uh, I think it is constrained to do so. Normally, if, if it was just one country, and a single country, can of course the the central bank can always go and and buy whatever bonds it wants, and then um, sort of vacuum them up, and and. Uh, and that's not a problem. In the, in the case of the ECB, that is a problem because it's one, this one country, but nineteen fiscal policies and, and nineteen default risks, and uh, and so. So the the ECB is very constrained, and I can't. Yeah, it's hard to see what what they what they can do. Mm. So I guess the issue is always what I call the credit impulse, right? So spreads go very wide, um, and uh, then causes recession. Uh, or further recession or further deterioration in in that particular country, and then then that boomerangs back to the ECB to lower rates again. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a vicious circle uh, that uh, that has been created. What do you think is the practical reality of of, of that? Are we going to be stuck in this vicious circle between and um, uh, you know between? Keeping spread lower and uh, and then you know, and being forced to change on the rate front, even though you may want to raise rates, you can't because you just cause a problem somewhere else. Um, uh, you know, what, practically, what what can be done to solve this issue? Other than my, I mean, my, my simple view is higher inflation and lots of economic growth. <laughs> that will solve a lot of the problems, but but uh, we don't seem to have that. 
The only possible solution, the only possible sustainable solution would be to reduce the debt to GDP ratios. Um, some people say, you know, you could inflate away these debts, but I don't think that that's possible anymore. That was possible in the 1970s. People weren't that awake about the risks um, of inflation. Uh, you didn't have financial markets weren't sort of... Uh, staring as hard at the, at the at the CPI data, the incoming CPI data as they are now. Um, you could sort of fool markets for a while by, by running inflation much above what they expected and you can sort of you could you could um, inflate away some of the debt. That's not possible anymore. Markets are simply too alert. The moment they start to smell inflation is coming, yields will rise immediately. So that's that's not possible. Higher growth, of course, as you say, is the is the um, would solve the problem. Um, and if we look sort of historically, a, a high growth in those countries that have, that have overcome large debt to GDP ratios successfully, high growth has has virtually always been uh, always been involved. But how do you raise growth in in Italy? Many governments have tried, and they haven't. Uh, you know, they haven't been very successful. I mean, I think in the case of Italy, I think. Politics is uh, is is always uh, coming in the way. So, so um, yeah, this is a this is a serious problem. And you know, if 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 they can't uh, raise growth, uh, then I think they will continue to have very high debt to GDP ratios. And in my in my view, the consequence of that will be that in the future we will have, as we've had in the past, actually, the last ten years or so, or uh, we will have. Um, Whatever interest rate the ECB sets is going to generate relatively high long bond yields in the highly indebted countries, depressing their growth. And relatively low uh, bond yields in the core countries, sort of boosting their economic activity. So you will have a, a Europe where half is doing quite well macroeconomically and the other half is, 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 is growing uh, very slowly. And... Uh, the only way to overcome this is to is to sort out the debt, but the the, the uh, governments don't seem to be willing to uh, willing to do that. I uh, yesterday I looked at some public debt uh, data for, for for Europe, and I think this is uh, a little frightening. Um, but if you look at the countries that were the original members of the eurozone when it was established in nineteen ninety nine, they um, um, the median. Uh, um, debt to GDP ratio of those countries was 61%. Italy in 1999 um, had 113% um, uh, debt to GDP, so it was about 53% or something above above the uh, euro area average. If you go and look now, the median uh, debt to GDP ratio in the euro of those uh, initial members is now about almost it's 79 percent and in Italy it's 148 percent and they're now 60 69 percent above the average nothing has happened uh, or actually things have gotten worse the last 20 years no not not better um, and I think that exp- that explains why every couple of years the issue of bond yields in the periphery of Europe uh, you know comes 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 back into play um, that needs to be reduced and if that doesn't happen and I can't see how these how these problems can 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 go away there is no uh, there is no quick fix here mm, no absolutely um 
So one of the things we've been talking about and uh, is relevant is around housing and real estate uh, in general and how uh, you know the higher interest rate environment that we are uh, you know moving to, uh, given the extraordinarily low interest rates we've had over the last two or three years, um, and you know how that is shaping up um, and uh, housing and certainly real estate in say countries like Sweden for example that have a high level of sensitivity to to interest rates given um the uh, high amount of you know mortgage debt and and uh, real estate debt uh, um thoughts on on uh, on uh, your home country of Sweden <laughs> well i think sweden is in a bit of a, is in a in a bit of a pickle now when one policy turns tight um i mean people have borrowed uh, for housing um thinking that interest rates would uh, would remain very low for a long time to come i think most people thought that but as always there are unexpected shocks and uh, they now lead to a surge in interest rates so in the case of sweden which i think is uh, is exposed um uh, there are, I mean, there are, in principle, whenever you think about this, there are three factors that uh, that really matter. The first is the fraction of households uh, that have a mortgage, and that rate is in Sweden is is very is very high, um, partially because of housing markets being so dysfunctional, uh, sorry, rental markets being so dysfunctional. Their households are effectively forced to buy. Um, uh, their their apartment or their house. Now, of course, that's a good thing in many ways, but it is a problem when the the economically weak members of the community, the, the people that are most likely to bec- become unemployed if there is a recession, younger people, less educated people, uh, and so on, if they are forced uh, to buy because they can't find a good place to rent, that is a problem. Um, so the share of households with, with a mortgage um, is a key issue. That's quite high in Sweden. The second question is, of course, simply how much have they borrowed relative to household disposable income? And there, Sweden is very, very high. Um, so you have lots of people borrowing a lot. Um, it doesn't look good. And the third factor is whether these loans are at a fixed or a variable rate. Now, uh, in, if you think of the US, there people can get... or. Um, as well as in Germany, people can get a mortgage, uh, a fixed rate mortgage that's going to be around for 20 or, or, or uh, you know, 30 years or something like that. In the US, they can refinance if rates go down, but they aren't required to do so. That's fine. In that situation, it's only going to be the marginal borrower, the new house owner, um, you know, house buyer, who, who will have to take out the f- first mortgage. It's only at that margin that people are influenced as central banks tighten monetary policy. If you have short-term loans, then of course they mature, or mortgages, and they mature, and you have to take out a new loan. Or if you have floating rate loans, where the interest rate on the loan is tied to the central bank, well, then you are in a pickle, because as central banks tighten monetary policy, it's not only the new borrowers that are going to be influenced, but also a large number of current borrowers, if, if you like. And the um, that number the sort of the variable rate mortgages as a fraction of total mortgages in Sweden is very high. And it tends to be quite high in general in what, in, first of all, in Scandinavia and Norway, it's the same thing. Um, it tends to be quite high in, um, in a number of countries 
uh, that have had high inflation historically. So, for instance, in, in Anglo-Saxon countries, in Canada, the US, uh, the UK, New Zealand, and also Australia, and so on. Um, so I, 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 I feel that Sweden is, is quite badly exposed to this. Uh, um, of course, in many ways, it looks... Um, uh, you know, things don't look so so bad. For instance, uh, uh, you know, th- these economies are not in recession. Unemployment rates are very are very low, um, and households have a lot of uh, of savings. But those numbers sort of pertains to the average household. If you have a housing cycle downswing, well. The average household is doing fine, thank you very much. It is the it, it, it is the weakest uh, households that we have to worry about. A small number of households that may default on their loans, and this tends to be people who lose their jobs in the, if there is a, a downturn or simply cannot pay the mortgages because the interest rate has risen so unexpectedly uh, to such a high high level. So we have to see what happens. Many people say this is not going to be a problem this time. The world is in a much better place now than it was uh, 10 years ago. We won't have a 2008-style global property crash. Um, But, um, well, we won't know that for another year or two, I fear. Mm. Well, certainly some countries are more exposed than others. I think, you know, we had the bank stress test uh, coming out uh, the other day and certainly, you, you know, you don't worry about um, uh, a financial crisis anymore in the in the United States, but that doesn't stop it happening in other countries. I, I guess Sweden. We've always talked about a housing crunch at some point, uh, you know, from for for many many years, and uh, Sweden has also had uh, out of cycle um, uh, bank runs as well in the past. Um, so uh, uh, you know, we'll certainly watch that um, you know that uh, dynamic very carefully. But but I think you do raise an important point is that as rates go up, you know, um, real estate sensitivity certainly picks up. And um, and and the debate we certainly have in the teams is you know is commercial real estate actually much more exposed than residential, um, given the general demand trends for residential remain pretty robust in most countries. Um, um, UK, for example, you know, working from home and all those sort of things, you know, have created these kind of structural forces. But certainly, what's negative for for also what's positive for residentials could be negative for uh, commercial. Certainly, uh, if you're in in a work from home environment, and uh, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Because the way I think about it is that a lot of these situations. Uh, when we did had COVID and everybody wasn't coming to work, um, uh, you know, interest rates were cut very aggressively and, and actually bailed a lot of these, um, you know, real estate companies out um, and, and they were given interest rate holidays and so on and so forth. But as that cycle turns, um, it'll be interesting to see if there's, if there's more significant vulnerability in uh those uh in, in in certainly things like commercial real estate and buildings and that, that sort of stuff so you know, stuff we've talked about over the last couple of years and uh be interesting to see when the when the liquidity is now you know reducing and rates go up whether those 
companies that are able to survive. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree. And what is a particular sort of problem right now, I think, is that sort of you have these chest thumping central banks almost outbidding each other who can raise rates by, you know, by the most. You see, you see uh, newspaper articles saying the Bank of Norway raised the interest rate by 50 basis points, uh, uh, the largest increase in, in, in 20 years. And then someone else says that the, well, the Czech National Bank raised them by 125 basis points, you know, and you at that rate, you know, you wait a couple of months and interest rates are a percent or two or three higher. Well, and if you if you hadn't prepared for that possibility, you may have a problem. Mm, no, absolutely. And certainly we're starting to see bond markets react to that, uh, that uh, impulse function, uh, as I as I like to call it, is that, um, uh, you know, and I think certainly over the coming uh, months and quarters, will have more incoming data. I think you can't help thinking that inflation and how that pans out will have a meaningful impact in terms of the pace that that pace and outdoing each other. <laughs> because very quickly outdoing each other will lead to rate cuts again. <laughs> so you always there's always a there's always the other side of that uh, of that difficult coin. Moving to uh, a country that's done very little in interest rates over the last um I know 25 years is uh, is the Bank of Japan, um, and uh, obviously, what's been happening there is they kind of reinforce their uh, monetary uh, policy, continue to do uh, in a QE, continue to um, uh, keep those long rates. In fact, uh, JGBs are the best performing bond market this year, um, but. Uh, Obviously, the currency hasn't been the best performing. In fact, the currency has been the worst performing, a dollar-yen up around 135, uh, give or take. Um, what's, your, what's your sense in terms of the BOJ? And obviously, the big debate in financial market circles at the moment is, um, can, is, is Japan an island? <laughs> it certainly is a very unusual, uh, uh, it's in a very unusual situation. And uh, I think it probably is on a monetary policy island of its own. <laughs> It is it is interesting that uh, in this situation where most central banks are announcing or suggesting that they'll be raising rates by massive amounts, the Bank of Japan happily continues with uh, with uh, negative with negative interest rates uh, at the short end and uh, uh, is basically um, preventing well not basically is preventing long bond yields from moving uh, in any direction. Uh, so we have we have zero yeah a flat term structure at zero effectively that is very unusual. So I think Japan is indeed in a, in a difficult uh, situation. Um, but in other ways, it's, uh, it's doing quite well. I mean, it, uh, the, the OECD is forecasting it to return to uh, uh, almost 2% growth this year and next year. And uh, inflation now is, uh, is just under 2% ex- expected for this year and next year by the OECD. Of course, that has to do with energy prices. But it does raise the question, if the economy is growing at the, you know, at the low but positive rate, does it matter so much if inflation is effectively zero? Um, perhaps it, um, perhaps it doesn't. But then again, of course, this low growth rate, this low but positive growth rate that we've seen, have come together with the most expansionary monetary policy we can imagine, and perhaps they would go away if the Bank of Japan, in, in some ways, stopped, for instance, bond purchases, etc. Um, yeah, Japan is really in, in an incredibly odd, odd situation. Mm. I guess the big question is um you know, at 
what point would they stop? I, I, I think they would probably want to see a big overshoot on their inflation uh, target which is 2%, which they haven't actually achieved <laughs> very much over the last 25 years. Uh, in fact, missed it by, by a country mile, as they say in the UK. Um, but, um, um, you know, what sort of level... I guess they would want to see it above 2% for a long time before they actually started to reverse course. I suspect so. I, I suspect so. Um, you know, some people say that... Um, uh, you know, central banks can't raise uh, inflation, and people have said about about Japan. But as we can see in the U.S., um, together with fiscal policy, of course, just, uh, I mean, in the U.S., we see too much in, in inflation as a combination of very expansionary fiscal policy and uh, very expansionary monetary policy. So it can be done. Uh, I don't. It's it's, uh, it's not in theory. It's not impossible. In practice, it's also not impossible. But it. Uh, certainly eluded Japan for a uh, for many years, uh, for the yeah for for twenty five years as you say. And in the early nineteen nineties, as I joined the BAS and sort of deflation first sort of set in in Japan, I remember the Bank of Japan uh, had a very positive spin on it. They said that this is as they called it price destruction, and they said that's a good thing. You know, prices fall, nothing bad with that. And I think they probably uh, waited too long to do something uh, with this. Uh, waiting uh, too long, I think, is a, can become a problem in, in central, central banking because the problems sort of become more serious. They multiply and really fester. Perhaps in, in some sense that was the Fed's uh, mistake. It, went, it, it waited until inflation actually rose in the past the fed always said it wouldn't raise interest rate we would raise interest rates as soon as inflation expectations started to rise so the labor market looked like it could trigger inflation uh, in in its new monetary policy strategy it announced in 2020 average inflation targeting it said we would no longer react preventively and they didn't and now they have an inflation problem perhaps perhaps japan had the opposite problem in the early 1990s mm. No, absolutely. So I guess we'll we'll have to wait carefully to see what actually happens. I think uh, inflation that stays consistently above their target for a significant amount of time before they will act, I suspect, is going to be the thing. And they'll probably wait far too long in the end. Um, and, and I guess, again, is the, is the release valve. I think as Japan opens up their economy um, and, and their travel, um, you know, Japan has become, you know, one of the number one destinations for tourism um, these days, um, or had, did before before COVID. I think their chance uh, with the yen at one thirty five means that there'll be a lot of American tourists going to Japan once their borders uh, open up, and that obviously is going to be positive for their economy and and um, and uh, hospitality and so on and so forth. So we'll we'll I think as we as time goes on over the coming weeks and months. Um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, an economy finally opens up. It'll be interesting to see how Japan reacts from an economic perspective, and uh, and that obviously will will provide um, some view on the currency, which is probably the biggest thing for for investors or think investors thinking about it at the moment. For sure, yeah. So we said we wouldn't talk about Powell, but let's let's talk a little bit about it. <laughs> um, Obviously, the Federal Reserve has, has raised interest rates um, 75 basis points. Uh, another one, 75 basis points is forecasted for July. 
And at the moment, the market is trying to figure out whether it's 75 or 50 for September, um, which uh, is probably one of the most aggressive um, monetary policy moves we've seen uh, in 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 decades, uh, certainly before I started um, in uh, in financial markets in the mid nineties. Um, the um, um, you know what are your what are your sense um, there? Obviously, inflation just noticing commodity prices have dropped quite dramatically over the last few weeks and, and last few days in particular. Um, uh, is, is it really going to be about looking at the inflation data as it? comes through and then that is going to have a significant impact on on monetary policy tightening i can imagine that if inflation were to come in low um, between now and the september meeting um, uh, that would could have a very big impact on what the on what the fed on what the fed would do there is obviously a large energy price related uh, sort of component to, to inflation in the US uh, and that ought to drop out unless energy prices oil prices continue to uh, to rise like uh, like a rocket um, so uh, I mean, that's not all what's going on in the U.S., but a part of the rate of the inflation, uh, of the rise in inflation is due to energy prices. And if that effect sort of dropped out quickly, the numbers would look very different. And as, uh, I would suspect that could have a very big impact on the Fed's thinking. Right now, with inflation is being higher every, every month, uh, the Fed's credibility has come into play. And then there's only one thing they can do, which is the, which is the tighten monetary policy. Um, I mean, I see. I see that the on you know, Fed funds futures. They look like they are pricing in um, the the highest likelihood. Uh, looking at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange here, it seems to be for interest rates to be uh, at two in the in the range of two point seventy five to three to three percent, which I think is then would entail an interest interest rates being one hundred and twenty five basis points higher than 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 today. Uh, you know, these are. Uh, these are massive increases, um, um, and in some sense, the Fed is 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 forced to de- to deliver them. But yeah, I think backtrack. I think a better way a better way to to put this, I think, is that the Fed's conundrum right now is whether or not it can re- lower inflation without causing a recession. And it looks like the markets uh, expects very rapid increases to continue at least until uh, until December. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's 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 really hard to imagine that this uh, this surge in interest rates uh, um, will not uh, will not put a, will not lead to a massive slowdown in the economy. Perhaps not a, re- a recession, but plainly uh, plainly a slowdown. Mm. So the Fed Reserve recently had one point seven percent as their target for for this year and next year in terms of real GDP, um, which obviously is relatively rosy. Uh, I've certainly defined that as being um, a good landing, not even a soft landing. Um, at that uh, at that level, clearly they've got a high degree of uncertainty, and I think that's, you know, markets don't like uncertainty, right? And, and I think that's why you've seen um, multiple, you know, valuation multiples for, for stocks in the United States and other places, you know, drop, uh, you know, quite dramatically, over the course of the first uh, six months of the year, um, so I think you know, the uncertainty piece is certainly there. 
uh, and then hopefully at some point over the next three to six months we can start to get some clarity because um, certainly the way the markets are priced at the moment it seems that they keep on raising rates up until the second half of next year and start cutting them um, if you look at the shape of the short short dated parts of the curve and US treasuries are now actually below 3% uh, yield as well so so um, uh, you know things have moved on very very quickly in terms of market this is market perception not necessarily um uh you know reality but uh you know the moment the market is pricing pricing in as you say aggressive rate hikes and then cuts <laughs> by the second half of next year uh, i suspect we'll land somewhere in the middle uh between those uh, uh between those stalls but it does mean Part of the reason why uh, I guess bond markets have, have performed much better over the last um, week. In fact, the two-year Treasury has nearly taken out um, its increase from the surprise CPI print for May. So I, I think that to me is actually quite interesting. Markets moving very quickly from a CPI or inflation narrative to a slowing growth narrative. Uh, and uh, I would certainly say Powell's done quite a good job. I'll probably come under a lot of scrutiny for this, but Powell's done a quite good job um, from a difficult position, I would say, over the course of the last um, uh, you know ten days or so. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, the uh, we have to see what happens here. If the U.S. economy is, uh, slips into a very deep recession, that uh, that judgment will not uh, yeah, yeah. stand the test of time. Yeah. But if it if things work out, that. Uh, in the way we, we hope, which is that the U.S. economy slows uh, a bit, inflation uh, starts to fall back, these oil price increases uh, uh, start to drop out of the calculations, demand slows a little bit, and inflation starts coming down in the way the Fed uh, the Fed thinks, then, then Powell will have uh, done very well. Um, I just feel uh, that these, the speed of these increases are just so massive. Uh, as you may remember, I, I calculated the average uh, speed of increase um, in the past episodes of Fed tightening since the early 1980s. Now, if you disregard the 2015 episodes when the Fed was very careful because it was still worried about the state of the financial system, the Fed has on average tightened by something like 17 or 20 basis points per month. Uh, and it done so for about a year. And it will have done much, much more than so on this occasion if the, if the, if the market's forecasts uh, turn out to be right. Uh, and when you move an interest rate so quickly by such a large amount, you must be sensitive to the fact that, you know, something somewhere might just break. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's something we will uh, remain very vigilant about uh, over the coming weeks uh, and the coming months. Uh, but Stefan, thank you very much for that uh, walk around the world of uh, monetary policy. I think we covered nearly every every location from Japan to the US and everything in between. So uh, thank you very much for for, for your time and uh, uh, and uh, you know we'll watch like hawks over the coming over the coming months. Thanks very very much, Moz. Yeah, I enjoy these little, uh, little uh, sort of um, broad reviews of the global monetary policy situation. Often we, we think of the next week only or and uh, or the next month and so and I think sometimes it really pays off to take a step back and look at a big picture and uh, think about what what's going on and how the future may un- unfold. So, thanks. Thank you. Well, that wraps it up for uh, today. So, thank you very much uh, for listening. And we'll catch up with you next week.